In a 2016 article by Yvonne Villarreal for the LA Times, my next guest said this of her show, Good Girls Revolt. I spent 11 years all over the country and I was very passionate about being a newspaper writer. I never heard of this lawsuit and here I am going around Hollywood in my second career trying to get a show off the ground about journalism. And I was always met with the same response from Hollywood executives, which is, we love journalists and we love the vibe of the newsroom, but journalism shows don't work because their reporting is reactive. They're not heroic. And I would always say, well, no, good reporters don't just wait for the phone to ring. And so it was never an easy sell. Ladies and gentlemen, this is all the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me is uh, is one of those people who, when you start a project like this, you don't realize that there are people that are equally or perhaps even more obsessed than you with the particular subject. <laughs> and in the last One Heat Minute production that I hosted completely, One Heat Minute, I found so many people that were more obsessed with Michael Mann than me and perhaps even more obsessed with Heat than me. And they were my absolutely favorite people. It was like you finally found one of the people that you've been looking for in the world. And, <laughs> and this extremely talented journalist of 11 years and now producer of some of the biggest shows in the world one of them being narcos another upcoming show that a lot of people are talking about and who i know one heat minute crew member jordan harper is writing for is june the sisterhood but it's my distinct pleasure to talk to the creator of good girls revolt and a research assistant with aaron sorkin who is actually a mentee of the writer of this film, Bill Goldman, Dana Calvo. Dana, hi. Welcome. I want to see this picture that you have of all the president's men poster that I've been hearing about in private conversations <laughs> before oh, we started recording. I'm actually in our little guest house right now because my husband's on deadline in the main house, but I'll send you a picture of it. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's almost creepy at this point. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for reaching out. Like, before I'd even kicked off the show, I announced I was doing it. And as I said, our mutual friend, Jordan Harper, said, uh, Blake, you kind of need to talk to Dana. <laughs> he just sort of gave me that, like, and I was like, okay, great. And you're like, no, we need to talk. Like, we need to talk right now. I was like, the show hasn't started yet, but we're, we're definitely going to talk. There's no shot. There's no... Uh, there's no shortage of minutes. It's a 138 minute uh, long film, yeah. so um, there's there's plenty of episodes that we can catch up on. But um, we're we're in early. You're the eleventh minute. Have you yeah. ever broken anything down minute by minute before? <laughs> no, and you know this is like an exegesis. This is like what fundamentalists do with a religious text. <laughs> so I I mean we're probably reading into things, but I love the exercise and I love how decadent it is for a movie that I, as I told you before we started taping, has changed and grown and morphed for me over the decades as I watch it. I watch it on my birthday every year as my, I get two hours to myself on my birthday and um, I like to have like a scotch or a tequila and I sip it and I watch the movie and this it's just, a person, it's my time. This is a person that we need to know in our lives, Dana Calvert. This, <laughs> I was just thinking of, 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 we just, it's been holiday season in Australia. It's been a quieter holiday season. A lot of staying at home the day that we're recording this 
is the 7th of January, 2020, and there's a lot of fires. Uh, I'm recording out of Sydney, and Sydney's kind of surrounded by fires. So a lot of folk who normally would go down the south coast who've got holiday houses or family or, you know, their family homes where they've grown up and stuff like that are all sort of stuck in Sydney. So there's been a lot of staying at home, a lot of, you know, really blistering weather, staying inside, air conditioning, all that sort of stuff. And someone said, like, oh, what are we doing? Like, is it, like, birthdays, da-da-da. Like, so the topic came to birthdays in one of the many days at home. And I said, and people go, what are you going to do on your birthday? I said, probably watch Heat. Wouldn't mind the kids to be out and just get a time to where I can sit down and just watch Heat by myself. Yeah. And people are like, that's really boring. And I go, well, yes, but that's me. That's fi- I'm fine with that. That sounds great. But away from heat and back to all the president's men and all the president's men. Look, I just, I, I one of the things I wanted to touch on there is all the president's men isn't as pronounced, I don't think, as uh, besides like a tonal picture, I don't think people from the outset would immediately associate it with what's come to be some of the kind of like iconic selections for a minute-by-minute minute picture because it's a lot of these morality, like, these ongoing morality tales in the movie and a lot of conversations and a lot of these in very much the style stripping back, not to be over stylized. Like, but I think part of its beauty. And I think in the minute we're going to talk about is just understated. It's, it's right there. It's happening in the frame, but there's just, there's an electricity that's in this movie that I just don't, I don't know. I don't know if any other movies even come close to it that, the the conversations there's something you know I don't I I don't know how the actors can do it I've I've heard you talk about some of the you know some of your your actors that you've worked with especially on the Good Girls Revolt and about how you 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 have a joy writing a scene you give that material to great actors and then there's just something that they elevate off the page and I think like not only is it obviously Redford at the peak of his powers and Hoffman and we're going to talk about Robards along this journey but it's like even Nicholas Costa, this like slimy douchebag who's straight out of a country club and, uh, you know, wearing this light suit and a pocket square at 9am on a Saturday morning in a Washington district courthouse. <laughs> like, it's like all that. They're just, there's something electric about it. And I, 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 it just in every single way, I love this film to pieces. And I love, I love tackling every person every moment and it doesn't it's like the thing where you know the end but you never are being bored with the process of what they're doing over and over well in that way it's a little like uh, not that it's as good but apollo 13 you know how it ends and it's still worth the ride um but but for me all the president's men is feels like a documentary yes and so that's that's what adds to the tension that like vibrato in these scenes where it's so real. They and and I did this in in Good Girls Revolt for Amazon. I stripped out the music because I feel that things get so much more tense when you don't have these annoying, you know, broadcast television sound cues. Okay, now we're going to tell you exactly how you're supposed to feel. And oh, if you didn't catch that line, it was supposed to feel whimsy. <laughs> if you strip out that music, you are just in that room with people their agendas, their own intensity, their own neuroses, their frumpiness, you know, <laughs> and that's what, like, Dustin Hoffman, when he tosses off these lines half muttering, 
always looking down. He rarely looks up. When he does, it's always to be a confrontational sort of dick, you know? <laughs> I mean, he couldn't be more realistically cut from the cloth of journalists that I know and love. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That, and we we can absolutely get to that. I've got to get you back for it. You know, right now we're at the eleventh minute of yeah. Alan J. Pakula's nineteen seventy six masterpiece. We're going to watch that together. We're going to dive into the courtroom. We're going to have the funnest and most cordial and just most I don't know. It's 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 a kind of beautiful coercion, I might call it, with Robert Redford trying to get even more details out of this very out of place lawyer that's uh, not here to represent some Watergate uh, some Watergate burglars. Um, it's, so we- a, it's a charming courtship. We can talk about it, but <laughs> if you watch it as a charming courtship, not as Robert Redford as like post me too sex pest, <laughs> but as a guy who just keeps sort of coming up to you at the bar and trying again, trying a different avenue, but is not threatening, not annoying, not aggressive. He's perfect. Well, that is the perfect introduction. We're going to watch this minute together. You guys know the drill. You're going to listen along, and then we're going to come back and talk about it. Well, I assure you there's nothing very mysterious involved. Well, but a little while ago, I was talking to a couple of the lawyers assigned to represent the burglars. No? They never would have been assigned to represent the burglars had anyone known that the burglars had arranged for their own counsel. Only the burglars couldn't have arranged for their own counsel since they never even made a phone call. So if no one asked you to be here, what? Why are you here? I don't want you to take this personally, Mr. Woodward. Woodward? It'd be a mistake to do that. I just don't have anything to say. <laughs> Your Honor, Mr. Betts is a young man with no prior record. I suggest a release on personal bond. Do one of the other men involved in the break-in call you? What reason do you have to assume that there were other people involved well, in the One of your clients was arrested with a walkie-talkie. They're not my clients. By Don't the way, that should be shown in Columbia Journalism. <laughs> Don't you love... Don't you love when there's a question that you, you think you're asking it to a lawyer. Obviously, he knows he's asking it to a lawyer. But just love the question of, like, was one of the other burglars. It's, it's, there's just, it's beautiful. Everything about this minute is beautiful. Dana, you're, you're a screenwriter. You're a journalist of 11 years. You just said it should be taught in the Columbia Journalism School. Tell me why. Tell me everything. I can't wait to unpack it with you. Yeah, well, uh, Robert Redford is gentle, tenacious, egoless, right? He's not there saying, I, First of all, junior varsity, amateur hour, the guy you don't want writing for your newspaper is the guy that's like, look, my editor woke me up at 2 a.m. I've got to deliver this. It's never about him. It is neutrally presented as the facts as I understand them are in direct conflict with what I'm experiencing right now. Can you help me straighten that out? Can you help me with this disconnect? Because the sky's blue and someone's telling me it's yellow. Let's, Let's figure this out together. And the underlying assumption is, if you just clear this up for me, I'll be on my way. Yeah. And so that's threading every interaction he has with this guy at the water fountain, at the bench, that you know, he goes comes back into the courtroom galley and slides in next oh. to him, which is so charming, you know, um, and so smooth. But and the underlying contract is always 
give me a breadcrumb and I'll be on my way. And the, the longer he stays and the more he refuses to go away, the guy is more increasingly incentivized to give him the goddamn breadcrumb. <laughs> and that's great journalism. That is great. And uh, what, what you said is perfect is there is completely non-threatening and you use the word courtship and I think that that's one of the, the perfect moments is for so much of this, Redford is being unassuming and he's sort mm-hmm. of standing behind and trying to be very like, if you could just pass that breadcrumb over there, then I'll be on my way to use your words, which I love. But he uses the full force of his charm about 40 seconds into the minute we're using where he's just staring into him. And you know, when you've had a conversation with someone who's really charming and they're staring into your face and you just feel like there's a relaxation, something that's happening. You're like, God, this person's really charming. And they're talking to you. He uses it. And that guy's like, I have nothing else to say. And so we get to see the great, it's, it's like a Sam Raimi horror movie, like trope of like, coming in from side of frame, the scary thing that you don't want, the the horror, which is just this tenacious, very calm journalist coming in behind and going, now I can just turn it up that just little bit more. I've used the full face of my charm. I've used everything and it's like, I'm going to say the thing that you're not telling me, which is... so That we both know. We both know. I'm gonna, yeah, we, we both know. You, you're not telling me. We both know this. And it's implicit, and I've been trying to breadcrumb this nicely with some charm, and I'm just going to put it right out on Front Street. Again, egolessly out on Front Street. And this has been a wonderful dance to get to this point. Yeah. It's... And and just backing up a little, even, I don't even know if, oh, no, I guess this isn't in my minute, but the... You're allowed to break Sorry. the rules. We start at the okay. minute, and we're allowed to go. This is just because I know this is your first okay. minute podcast. This is not our dance. We can now go anywhere and everywhere well now well when he first stops to when the the meet cute in the courthouse when he first slides up to him and you know slides up to this guy as you said in a light suit with this cleft chin on a saturday morning or sunday morning um and the guy says to him nicholas markham he says oh i'm not here i'm not here boom we're (laughs) off to the races (laughs) that is it that is the circuit connection for wood, I mean, already he he knows he is not leaving this guy until he gets what he came for. Yes, because the great thing is even when he's amongst the, um, when he's amongst that cohort of lawyers that are out the front. That scrum, yeah. The scrum, and they're all sort of nattering, and they couldn't care less that he's there. Another great choice, and he asked that question of like, isn't that unusual that they've got representation? I think, like you said, the. The question is out there, and then that fires the circuit. And everything's wrong about him. Everything's wrong about that. And when you're... This is what this film is a series of. There is something wrong. And I love how you said that there's an ego... There should be an egoless approach. And actually, there is a moment where you're like, you never want to say, I've got a deadline. And then in arguably one of the probably the worst scene of the movie in my mind in a basically perfect movie is Carl Bernstein to, to Dardis, the lawyer in Miami, when he says, I've got a deadline, I've got a deadline right now and I need it. And it's the Nora Ephron uh, additional scene of the movie uh, for Dustin Hoffman but um, uh, and Carl Bernstein. But it's like this whole egoless thing, I don't... And taking the time and no music 
and very matter-of-fact shooting and constantly in the viewpoint of Costa and this revolving, beautiful Woodward. They don't make movies like this. It's when you start... Well, they don't. And, you know, if it were... I'm going to throw Tom Cruise under the bus right now. Whatever. I have nothing (laughs) against Tom Cruise. Um, But... You know, if this were a shitty Tom Cruise movie, you would you would know your hero and you would know that you are watching what's going to be an incredible bank heist of a movie because he would rescue someone in the first 10 minutes. Yes. He would emerge victorious against all odds. And then you would go to the newsroom or then you would go to the... And instead, what, what Pakula does is he starts off very lo-fi with these guys casting a wide net, it's a basic white bread assignment. Just go find out. This was on. This was on our cops calls. This is on you know intake sheet the precincts. There was a break in. Oh, and by the way, it might be a little sexier because it's the National Democratic Convention. By the way, I I worked for the Associated Press in D.C. and I covered I covered the pool at the White House early in the morning before the real reporters had to be there. <laughs> and it's in, it's it was when the president was jogging in case he got assassinated. We called it the ghoul pool. Um, and you're there from 6.30 a.m. until 9.30 a.m. And you're just literally covering it in case he gets shot. and Or in case he makes news in the Oval Office by ratifying something. And then the real guys show up and, and you go back to the office. And when I went back to the office, I would cover the D.C. metro area. And part of my job, the beginning of every shift and the end of every shift was to call every precinct in Washington, D.C., from DuPont to Anacostia and say anything noteworthy on the blotter. So if you develop enough sources over time, there is something very noteworthy. They call you. An officer on duty will call you. So presumably that's what happened. And or we don't see this in the movie. Someone had a police scanner by their desk and heard a break in. Oh, wait, it was in the Democratic party you know yes um headquarters and they called and then they found out about these sequential bills and a walkie-talkie again no smoking gun but that's weird that's sexy maybe that'll get play you know like even if it was just a random break-in so we start with just the littlest bit of string we start with an assignment we start with the anti-hero before we've gone to the courthouse, we see Dustin Hoffman's character, Carl Bernstein, grubbing for a sexier story, and he hasn't <laughs> even finished his old boring ones. We are the first glimpse we get of perhaps the biggest movie star of the seventies is he's asleep. He has to be woken up to be a hero. Robert Redford fumbles for his bone and is told to go to the courthouse. When we show up at the courthouse, it is as um, it is sort of the most uh, dry work you can do as a reporter you cover cops and courts and it's one of the meat and potatoes beats meat of, some, of being a meat reporter and potatoes, yeah cadet cadet and journalist maria lewis my dear friend who's been on this show as a cadet journalist gets those boring late night police scanner assignments to start off her career like it's exactly right. what you need to do and so robert redford not swinging in on a vine walks into this echoey drafty courthouse and something is off. And like, and no one's talking to him. Mind. No one's talking to him. There's no red carpet rolled out for him. He's in a plain no. corduroy jacket. Like it's definitely like a week. It's a weekend version of a suit. He's thrown on a tie. It's crooked. He's literally out of bed. His hair's a bit matted, like you know, um, uh, matted and messy. And he's the one who's like leaning in 
peering around the corners here. Can, can someone just point me in the direction of what's happened? And then it's, like you said, that lightning strike, that circuit break. Yeah. But what we've do- what it's done is it's put us in the position of very, even though we know how this is going to end, you realize when you're watching it in real time, your expectations are so low. It really started with this? <laughs> yes. Yes. It started with this. I want to ask you a question that's already been brought up on the show, and I think it's really important for someone as as obsessive as you. Isn't it a beautiful, and it seems like an avant-garde decision later, to show the biggest villain of the movie at the height of his powers and influence in this resound, surrounded by this resounding machine descending from the gods in this helicopter and then just never needing to see him again? You see, you not only it. never needing to see him again, but every chance he gets, the director shows us, he shows these Valentine exterior shots of DC, these monuments that have been here long before him and will outlast him, these temples to democracy. Yes. And, and that's, that's actually the counterbalance to it. You were 11 years in the Associate Press in Washington, D.C. Of course this is your movie. Of course yeah. well, this I is... Well, I was only in D.C. for three years, and then I was on the on the border and overseas in California and oh. all that. But, but yeah, the dog years of my life, 22 <laughs> to 25, were in Washington, D.C. And I didn't have a journalism degree. I just went there right out of college. Um, and, and I was in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times as a copy girl. I mean, I was thrown into the cat seat and it was intoxicating and it was amazing. And I had, I was just surrounded by people who were the best at their game in the world. And you know what? All these stories started with the smallest thing. Yeah, the sm- you know, just in case the president gets assassinated, but if that doesn't happen, it's what, ra- what ratification? What are you gonna pick up right in the late at night that just doesn't add up? And is it going to play? I listened to a great interview with you. You were talking on a podcast about one of your first gigs outside of journalism as a research assistant with Aaron Sorkin on Charlie Wilson's War. Yes. And you said there's two kind of rules of the approach that you take with someone like Aaron Sorkin, which is verisimilitude and research. And this film... I think blurs the lines in such a crazy way between what you would sort of say like a primary or secondary resource, like from a historical standpoint, because you've got a, you've got 1972 where these guys are doing their work and then before they've even assembled it into a novel because it's coming out in print every day, Robert Redford's in their ears not to buy the uh, an article to adapt into a film but like when you guys adapt the novel we want to buy the rights because we want to make this into a movie so it's before it even happens and then they're making it presumably in like 75 for a 76 release or like eclipsing through 75 pre-production into 76 and then it's released in, in theaters and it's released a little bit later in the year with all of that in mind and then even and i'm not sure if you know this but the actual security, I'm sure you do, the actual security guard at Watergate plays himself finding the tape on the door. There is a weird thing that this movie very understatedly does, which is like, it is a docudrama that is trying to be as authentic as possible, obviously with the movie star flourish of 
the biggest movie stars of the 70s playing off of one another. But there is so much specificity and so much detail around the time and so much of this stuff that's all happening. And it's then released like a few years later. So it's essentially in the thick of it. It's kind of like the same proximity as Apocalypse now as to the end of Vietnam. Like it's like it's something that's being made while it's happening and then it's released at the end. Is that – that's a weird and unusual thing. But it's so – when you said that quote, very similar to it in research, I'm like this movie is the essence of those two things coming yeah, to life. Yeah, and, and- – no one had magical powers. No one had, I mean, they had creep. They, they had the, the war chest of money. <laughs> yes. But, you know, you didn't have a, an insanely outsized villain like Donald Trump with a war chest and, and you know, the NRA. The, you, you didn't, you just had these like quotidian white guys, you, even in suits and ties, doing the break-in like you'd almost wonder like are these guys in like dad dad jeans you know what i mean <laughs> it just it was almost so accessible and and that's in a way what i love about the process of making this movie um almost simultaneously to the book which is yeah it was it was completely doable anyone could have participated in this you didn't really need um a, you didn't really need a, a, a special magical harry potter like skill so you watch this i i know you talk about it which is can i just say firstly being in australia the good girls revolt your show that should be on amazon prime is available everywhere but not in our country oh my gosh no i didn't know that i'm sorry i'll send you something it's really annoying firstly no you don't have to send me i'll find i'll we'll we'll find a way to legally acquire it in this country it's really annoying that it's not i'm just saying that if in case anyone on amazon prime is listening um but i wanted to ask you you start out with you start out with aaron sorkin i'm mindful that as a process of, uh, of being a, a writer and a filmmaker, and especially when you're producing shows, there's a tone to be set. And in one of the interviews I heard you talking about with The Good Girls Revolt, and even in the beginning of this show, you talk about if you strip away all of that artifice from what the show is, like you're stripping away the music, you're stripping away those emotional cues, and you're kind of stewing in with that, is this a foundational text that you use with your collaborators when you're talking about, okay, this is the tone that we're going for. Like, do you, do you start using this presidents as like a shorthand in your own creation? Um, I think it's important to have so much story, so much story to burn that you don't need to pad it with gimmicks. When you have so much story to burn, you actually can cut away some story and what you're left with is this freeze-dried essence of really what you're getting to yes we never ever in this movie ever unlike spotlight which is another favorite movie of mine obviously we never go home with these guys i mean we go to their house when they're playing music because they think they're being bugged but i don't know who they're sleeping with i don't know really like I don't know what they look like when they shower. I mean, you couldn't even have a, a movie like this today without seeing your hero shirtless at some point. <laughs> and it's, and I don't know if that ended up on the cutting room floor. This is all work all the time. They are saving democracy. Yes. Yes. 
So there is a purity to that. Um, their homes and- are messy, though. Their homes are filled with that copy paper. Like the, the, when there are there are a couple of brief flashes of home. Uh, you know, when you're being flagged, <laughs> when you're being flagged that uh, you're being bugged, etc. And there's just mounds of copy paper all over the place. You've drafted this story 10,000 times. You're going to take it back into the office and put it at the copy desk. This is an all-consuming thing. And what all-consuming. I All-consuming. Is- and, they, and they have the luxury of being, I, I assume they were bachelors um, in real life. I know they were actually. They have the luxury of so many young journalists at really when they're hitting their mark of being self-absorbed and unencumbered. Yes. Yes. Two essential things to be a successful yeah. journalist when a story, even though the entirety of Washington and this movie does this so much, and it does it in, in a microcosmic way in this scene is the machine is just keep is spinning. The machine is humming, whether it's in the courthouse machine whether it's the machine of the entirety of Washington, D.C., whether it's the machine of you know, the Library of Congress, the machine is humming. And these guys are just sort of tenaciously trying to cast a light. There's a problem. And it takes so long to even get to that tipping point, that un- yeah. that unresolution, because they're just going and they're clawing and clawing and clawing and fighting and fighting and fighting to get to that moment. And then I have to, because I have an... Uh indiscreet objective whenever i talk about depictions on screen at these stories i have to talk about the role of women in this movie yay of course Um, and so what he's done so beautifully is we get the facts we build a story every goddamn newsroom scene all the important people every editor's meeting men 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 smoking men (laughs) in white shirts men doing this men you know feet up on the table And we get the fear and the thrill and the horror of what this, the implications of this story are only when they are talking to terrified women on the threshold of their homes or sitting in their family rooms and the women are scared to talk. And that's when the crime really starts to resonate or when the guy, and I'm forgetting his name, his wife is pregnant and she's about to have the baby. Yes. It's only with the presence of the heart, the home, families at stake, our country at stake, do we start to widen the war and understand this isn't just about getting bad guys. This is about protecting our country. And that to me, like, I did start to see the movie differently after I had my daughter. And I thought, at one point I thought, how would this movie have been different if everyone they interviewed had been a man, or if even the women they had spoken to had not been in their homes, they had found them in workplaces or in supermarkets or whatever, but they made a, either they made a choice or this really happened. But suddenly, and you can feel it when you watch it, the emotional momentum of the movie shifts. It's no more about getting the story, it's about saving our country. Uh, And I love exactly what you said there, because it's also a women in some ways, especially Jane Alexander's bookkeeper character. Yes. Which is, she was Academy Award nominated absolutely, completely deservingly. It's one of the, maybe one of the best scenes in any investigative movie ever. And we're probably going to have to, we're going to have to wrangle with that and argue that ad nauseum on this show. But I love also that it's the dismissed bookkeeper. Oh, it's just the bookkeeper. You know, you handle the money once 
Bernstein gets into her house and it's just, a, it's like completely opposite to the charm of Woodward. It's just like the clawing, oh, I'm going to get in, I'm going to slide in. It's like that salesman personality of his. Oh, can I just have a cigarette? I'll have 48 cups of coffee or whatever the case may be. I'll scroll notes. But she's like the truth. She's the truth sayer in, in this movie. She's dropping some of the biggest facts. And even their colleagues, you know, Sally Aitken, played by Penny Fuller, like there's there's that great scene of her just having a relationship about the Canuck letter. Like all these revelations, these bombs that drop in this movie, it's like people who've maybe been on the fringes, people who've been a bit dismissed, people who feel like the machine, they can share some of the secrets of this BS and they're women. <laughs> they get to share, yeah. they get shared all this information and all these guys, all these suits, they're part of the machine. And it is a great dichotomy. And it's, you know, I, I don't know why I'm attracted. One of my friends once said that, Blake, you're into dude movies about dudes in crisis. Um, and uh, and I, I think that that's very apt with heat. And I wasn't necessarily thinking it with all the presidents, but it is a movie that is dominated by men when you say, like you said, all these men meeting, 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 meeting. But, you know, there's that great Lindsay Krauss scene as um, K. Eddie where they're like, oh, can you talk to your, can you talk to your ex about getting us a list of the employees of Crete. That is like one of the most fantastic and phenomenal journalistic quandaries that you have to have is like, do I burn this person in my personal life forever to make them a source, to make this a more successful story? Or, and for these guys, they have no stakes because they've got no skin in the game, but do I do that or do I not? And the question of, I guess I'm not as ruthless as you guys, um, comes up in that relationship. Yeah, but I don't, the other thing I love about this movie, so many movies don't age well for women. Um, this one does. I don't feel any women are any are victims at all in this movie. None. In fact, I think some of them are dumb like a fox. I don't know if she slept with him to get that information or if she charmed him, but she, she, she did was something. not a victim. No. She did it. She, she was did consenting it. adult. She did it. She knew the stakes. She understood the story. Yes. Um, and same for the women who they go and talk to. I mean, if those women were really, I mean, they're those female characters, they could have made a choice. They could have been, you know, the silver fox Barbara Bush and shut the door <laughs> in their face and said, don't ever come to my home again. Boom. They didn't. <laughs> they stood there and said, they're watching. It's scary. You know. Please go. It, please go. Please, please go. I mean, really, the, the, if you change, if you change the text, it was stop, don't stop, please, don't, you help. And so it is, um, and it reminds me of that almost that ant, that vestibule scene on security camera panic room when the cops come to Jodie Foster's <laughs> character and they say, you know, give us a sign. Um, so the women are not victims at all. And then what I love most of all is that you never see Catherine Graham. No. And completely, and actually, I've read rumors. You might know off offhand as it was always going to be Faye Dunaway if 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 Catherine Graham was going to be in the movie. Is that right? Well, I don't know, but I love that Jason Robards is is the dad protecting <laughs> protecting her. He is. It, it just strengthens his nobility and his. He's so gallant and so pure, and he even defends her honor. Like when they they say that sort of terribly Crude. violent thing about she's gonna get a titty caught here and he's like do they really say that about mrs graham you know <laughs> there's 
he's he's not only defending the country, he's defending her dignity. And so in a way, I think this movie ages beautifully for women. And it's one of the reasons that I can still watch it and just love it. God. Robots. I like yeah. gallant, I mean, gallant, gallant. You know, I just, I, he, I just watched, I just listened to your first minute um, podcast yesterday. And I think like, Big Robards energy should be now in our. <laughs> well, well, I hope I, I hope so. What people didn't see, if it was a video podcast, is that whenever we talked about Robards, uh, Robards rather, Bill Bilga Abiri, the great Bilga Abiri, was leaning back in his chair and putting his feet up on his desk because that's that's the big Robards energy is to to come over with a red pen. And I don't know about you, but I miss a red pen. I miss a red pen for everything. There's something so maybe it's different when you're writing scripts because you guys do take a red pen to cut scenes out or something like that. But in a lot of filing now, it's all digital. There's no beautiful big red pen. You haven't got it. Cross. See you later. That whole paragraph is going. Start it again. Um, yeah. There's something about that newsroom. So when you were when you were starting, Dana was, you know as as doing the copy editing and you're doing this, you would have been, by the sounds of things, right in a sort of transition point where you've got a sack of the old school journalists who maybe even have started right at the time that this is depicting in this movie. And exactly. into the transition point where there's this omnipresence of digital coming through. Like, could you talk a little bit about the clash of, like, you know, that technology versus that slower pace? Because that's, I think, the addictive thing for me here is the focus and the time and the patience to tease out the details in this movie. That's right. And the time off screen that, that they had back then to fail, to hit walls, to have an editor like Robart say, you don't have it yet. Mm. Go back and keep working. Whereas now, and we have so many dear friends who are still journalists, the pressure to, you know, live tweet your reporting, um, <laughs> I can't even imagine doing it. No. Um, and then to, to, you know, I just finished over the holiday. I read, she said the book by Jody Cantor and Megan took to about Harvey Weinstein. It reminded me of all the president's men. I read it in two days. I couldn't put it down. I know they have a movie in the works for it. It was amazing. Um, but, and, and Dean Backhey, who's the editor of the New York times has big Robards energy in this book. You know, <laughs> He is the one, he keeps pushing it. No, don't you, you know, they come at him. They come at the paper with these threats and he keeps them at bay. This unbelievably um, noble patriarchal role, if they would let women run newspapers, we could see it as a matriarchal role. <laughs> but um, so, and I think what's, what's so amazing now, and there's so much phenomenal investigative journalism being done now amidst the nonstop 24-hour buzz of social media, the demands of, wait, you hit a wall, it must be all over. Yeah. You know, this hyperbolic, oh my gosh. Move to um, the next thing. Black Move to the next thing, live tweet the next thing. And you're like, no, 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 the walls are meant to be hit. This is part of the process. I mean, the scene for me that hits home so much is when I'm watching all the president's men and they are looking through the phone books. <laughs> yeah. I started, when I started, we looked through phone books for people, you know, and it was just a different kind of thing. And I also love, I know this isn't in my minute, but when we're up, the, very few shots by Pakula are up close. I mean, even in my minute when we're in the courtroom, it's like that underwater, hard to hear um, 
courtroom proceeding, you can like sort of hear the judge calling their name and Rob and Redford's like leaning forward he, and he's squinting to try to hear and he's got his pen in his mouth. So you're just up on his face as he's, he's trying to, you know, figure out what's going on. Um, and, but one of the only clear cut, you know, extreme close-ups that Pakula gives us is notepads where people are taking notes yes. on phone calls, crossing Scribbling people's out, faces. Yes. And it just adds to the intimacy of, of the moment. Oh, it's like, it's amazing. <laughs> I just love the amount of paper. I love the amount of paper that, I mean, obviously probably not as good for the environment. I just love the paper. I love the, I love that there is an organized chaos. You, there's a lived in with everything in here in this film. And um, I, I want to touch because it's, you, you touch on it around this scene, the underwater quality of this, because there is something that takes a lot of, takes a lot of stones as a filmmaker to go, I want people to be straining to hear almost yep. this entire sequence. And that's okay because we can barely hear Woodward. You're straining to hear him talk to the lawyers. It's only when he asks the direct questions. This line of questioning that's going to mark him, teasing out these additional details. And then there's the great one, as you said, his pen's in his mouth and he's leaning forward. And he goes, and I work for the CIA. And he's like, Holy shit. What the right? Holy shit. Well, at first he mutters a lawyer, central intelligence mm -hmm. agency. Like and the, we and the judge, sort of and, heard. and the judge goes, sorry, what did you what did you say? Yeah. And he leans in. It's like the CIA. And I love there's a moment. It's one of those beautiful moments and this movie does it so well. And I think this is William Goldman just all over. There's so and and I think great filmmakers do this. They just let huge they let sort of winky you're watching a movie isn't this fun things. They let it happen in a movie in such an organic way that it's not on the nose. Like, it's not this big, obvious smash cart, bang, here it is. It's just like Woodward's looking around going, "Did anyone? is anyone else reacting to the fact that this guy works for the CIA? And it's this beautiful moment because, yes, all the people that are reacting are in the audience. We're all here going, Holy shit, this guy works for the CIA. <laughs> like, what is going on? And no one else in the gallery cares. No. Because no. they're there on, you know, disorderly, drunk, con whatever they're there for. Yes. And he hears CIA. He's, he obviously does not know what in the world it means. And again, that underwater quality. He doesn't even take notes. What is he going to take notes on? <laughs> and by the way, now going back to my assignment, which was this minute, when he has his notepad and pen at the water fountain with Nicholas Markham, he doesn't take notes. There's nothing to note. He he is just trying to get a foothold. He's just trying to find something to hang on to. So now he knows these. it's strange that the robbers had their own things. And this guy says, oh, I'm not here. It, it all, you know... If it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, but he doesn't know what he has. No, and I think you you just touched on something that I heard from, like a. I was working in a uh, working in a big corporate entity, and there was an emergency management training, where like a like a a fire warden like who, who worked in Sydney was talking about preparedness for an emergency, and if you're a warden, he said his most powerful tool was a clipboard mm. because someone was like, Oh, what's it like when you've got to put on this hat and you've got to start, basically people have to start listening to you. You've got to order them around and some people aren't going to like it, you know, hierarchically in this company, they might be higher than you, but 
in an emergency situation, you've got to take over and help them escape safely. Yeah. And he said, my most powerful tool is a pen and a clipboard because you just start going, can you please move? Yeah. And if they don't, just going, oh, okay. And whatever they start saying, just pretend like you're taking notes of everything they're saying. And it's just one of those, like, you're taking those notes and immediately they're like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, they get up. He's just like, this is something when people start realizing that they're being noted down. And I think that that's that great implicit decision. And you just you just hit it, like, right on the nail. It's like, what am I actually even going to note here? What is of note that he's telling me? Nothing is worth me scribbling down on a piece of paper because it may as well be two plus two equals five or the, the you know, the sky is red because it's like, well, in Sydney it is, but this, in Australia it is, but like the sky is green because he's not giving me these short circuit moments until sort of the later parts. And that's when my pen comes out of my mouth and immediately hits the pad and I can start jotting all these things down where these are things of importance. And by the way, as soon as he hears CIA, it's a, match cut to the newsroom we're done we're done the like, you're not going to get better intel than somehow this is tied to the cia no you're out no you're out yeah you don't need anything more than that and yeah. you know you've just seen a bunch of guys in their oversized weird suits who completely don't look like they belong in those suits to begin with and there's nothing else you need to know and and just even saying yeah. there's a walkie-talkie there's a walkie-talkie you're of course communicating to someone else. Like that's that's I think that that's the hook for Markham. You know that final hook. And when he's and when Woodward's sitting in that um, bench in the in the galley of the courthouse, and the judge is saying to the defendants, you know, you describe yourself as an anti-communist. You're from are you Cuban American? From it, it's all of these sort of random um, exotic details, none of it lines up, which just makes him lean forward even more. It's 2020. Donald Trump is the president. God help us. (laughs) Indeed. There is what has been striking me as I continue to revisit this. And I think it's now in our lexicon of, our cultural lexicon in the Western world is like, there is political fuckery going on all the time. Mm -hmm. And especially potentially spying on or getting information about your political opponents to make you more equipped seems like it's par for the course. And in this, the, the morality of those decisions is so huge. I guess what I'm interested in with you, Dana, when you're watching this, and I think this is one of the things that just like deeply fascinates me is, there are a whole bunch of people that enabled and did illegal things and enabled Nixon to, to execute these things. So, like, he gets in, he wins in a landslide election victory and still has this clawing for power, like more power, more power, more power. And, and what I love about this is that it kind of speaks to the culture of a lot of people turning a blind eye to bad shit happening and having to work through those people one by one to get to the motivation at the top in complete contrast in Donald Trump's world, which I don't know if it's a more positive thing or an, or a negative and I'll, I'll get your comment on whether that is or not. But I've said a couple of times on this show that the Mueller investigation showed us one thing was that 
there's this person at the top who's asking of his staff to do unreasonable and often illegal things. And thankfully, these public servants who work around him basically said no, like a lot, or just said, okay, and then just didn't enact orders because they knew that they were to be illegal. Does that make you more or less comfortable as an American citizen right now with that dichotomy of like, there's a machine of illegality and people that were just stretching the friendship or there's a machine of public servants around them that increasingly getting fired that are kind of protecting us? Well, I think regardless of the accusations of fake news, I mean, I do think Fox News is a propaganda tool. Um, and But, you know, like I listen to CNN and BBC. Uh, BBC, I just think, is impeccable journalism. I just, I, I think it's real facts yes. and all that stuff. But um, I, I think there's never been better journalism than that's been going on in the past few years, fueled in part by a generation of Watergate-trained journalists and editors. But the, I don't think we can underestimate the democratizing tool of social media. Yes. For someone to tweet something. I mean, the whole Me Too movement really was started from a tweet by Rose McGowan. Yes. And journalists who followed up on it. James Comey tweeted... So I think we have uh, I, I think we have a severely mentally ill man <laughs> in power. I don't mean that to be funny. I mean I, I truly think he he needs a lot of intervention and help. And um, that said, I do think, as opposed to when all the president's men was happening and we were just with Vietnam, sort of just seeing people speak truth to power. I think people are more comfortable speaking truth to power now. They have support systems around it. We have language to just to talk about it. Um, and one of the things that I think it was one of the most important things that the Me Too movement did was it, it identified how we isolate disenfranchised, powerless people. We isolate them so that they think they're the only person doing this freakish thing, when in fact... They are one of many victims in a large machine that conspires against them. Yes. And, so, the, and the, sy I, I, the system is corrupt. And so it's like yeah. now we have to litigate the system and, and take out the individuals and take the individuals for who they are and then litigate litigate those systems yes. that, have, that have made them there. So it's the, the people around them that have made that ecosystem happen. Exactly. So I think in a way... Um, I think it was a lot scarier to speak out during all the president's men. Nixon's not tweeting. I mean, that's that's for sure. What is what you know? He's he's doing a lot more underhanded. You know, there's a, there's a very public, glorified face of Nixon, and then you know, now the luxury of American freedom of information, and you can sort of listen to whole interviews and him ranting in the White yes. Office and stuff like that. It's it's it's. It feels like those rants could, have, in a modern context, would be tweets. But if someone was tweeting the things that Nixon was saying in the privacy of that White House, you'd be like, "He's a lunatic! Like he's a dictator! Yeah. He's he's crazy!" Yes. All of those things would be, you know, being leveled at him at the same time. Yeah, and I think Bob Woodward's character at the time was very genteel, um, very analytical, and bloodless. You know, he just was he was just the facts, whereas. Carl Bernstein, played by Dustin Hoffman, was actually in a way more of a modern figure um, yes. because he got in your face. Fuck you! I'm allowed to do this, and I'm going to go tweet this, and you know, kiss my ass. And I'm gonna, he he was much more on the surface as we are now. 
Yes. So they were such, I mean, I know it was art portraying real life, but that's why they made such a perfect odd couple pairing at the time too. Yeah. And I think you need that. You need that collaboration. You need that push pull because sometimes you need to get in people's faces. And the, one of the funnest moments is, and I wonder if it's just all of his time, all of his time around, all of their time around one another is that great scene. Another scene you might have to come back for is, no, we just, we just say that it's Porter and then we bury it. And he's like, no, wait, I say that it's, yeah, we, we just bury it. And then we know that Porter's And by the Pete. way, I will say she knew. When I watched <laughs> that scene new, now, she knew they came for confirmation. Yes. <laughs> She's like, how do you know? She's got that great face. How do you know? Yeah. Well, speaking of confirmation, this nearly an hour conversation that we've been having about this movie is confirmation that you're going to have to come back at some point for another minute. I'd love to. Another. I love this endeavor of yours. Thank you. It's uh, like I said to you just before we were recording, I don't know if it's a, it's an obsession that I have, but I just feel like some of these perfect and rewatchable and enduringly rewatchable films, um, they just call for this kind of scrutiny. Um, and so I think that particularly this film, it just so happens to be like, I don't know, like it's ascending to this point of prescience in pop culture that is just so important. And so it's kind of lucky and in that it's timely, but you know, even six months. So like two years ago, I was watching this movie once a week casually. And I just, it then started to sing. I was like, I just couldn't understand I couldn't understand how good it was until I watched it a, another hundred times. And now I think scrutinizing it minute by minute with great people like you, I think is exactly what I need to do to. I know. And to, they're real people. They don't have any magical powers except conviction and tenacity. And that's a magical power, I guess. But And smoking. God damn. <laughs> the, the, God the, damn the magical smoking. power of smoking. I think I will. Yeah. If there's, if there's a bad, if there's a, is the bad byproduct of this movie, it may have me smoking by the end of it. <laughs> Because, God damn it, as a former smoker, I keep telling my wife, I'm like, come on, Australia's on fire. We're all probably being poisoned by the air. Can I just smoke? Like, can we just smoke and get it out of the way? No, be good. Um, But, yeah, Dustin Hoffman's superpower most certainly is smoking. Danny Calvo, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thank you so much, and stay safe. We're thinking about you and your country right now so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much to the incredible Dana Calvo once again. Uh, Dana is currently the co-showrunner of Dune, The Sisterhood. Um, one of the writers in that room is the incredible Jordan Harper, who's been a guest of One Eight Minute Productions several times now. We love Jordan, and we especially love Jordan for putting us in touch with the incredible Dana Calvo. Uh, just someone who is definitely going to be back along this journey once again. Thank you, Dana. If you want to follow Dana, the best place to find her is Twitter, and her handle is at Dana S. Calvo, D-A-N-A-S-C-A-L-V-O. Thank you so much again for listening to all the President's Minutes and anything on the One Heat Minute Productions feed. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and producer of Increment Vice, as well as everything that's been happening on the One Heat Minute Productions feed. If you want to follow me, simply go to at One Blake Minute on Instagram and on Twitter, or to 
oneheatminute.com to find out everything that's happening with the show and about the show. If you guys want to support us, we have a link on oneheatminute.com to our Patreon. If you can spare even a couple of bucks a month, the cost of a coffee a month you are going to be contributing to this show, The Amazing Increment Vice, and any other amazing shows that are a part of One Heat Minute Productions. Thank you so much in advance. If you can't support us, you don't have the cash, that's totally fine. But please, subscribe, rate, review, and share the shows. We would love, if you are digging the show, share them with like-minded film folk around the place. Thank you so much once again for listening to this episode. We'll catch you on another episode of All the President's Minutes and another episode in the One Heat Minute Productions feed very soon.